my wife has been supportive of my work. My kids have been supportive of the work. That it's 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 been a uh, been a wonderful situation. So this sure this this raises the high uh, scaler. There, yeah, it's, that's lovely. Oh, We're going to keep that in. Wait, wasn't that lovely? That was awesome. <laughs> so, it, it, and, timing too. and by the way, this is a this is a woman headed off to jazzercise where she goes five days a week. After so that <laughs> she yelled at me. Excuse me, she yelled at me six days. <laughs> now, you don't have to excuse excuse me about that. I was interrupting. A, I was interrupting passion. That's a, that's a bad thing to do. <laughs> Thank you very much. Okay, I'm Todd Fredericks, Assistant Professor of Family Medicine uh, at Ohio University Heritage College of Osteopathic Medicine, and uh, we are doing rotations, and uh, we left off. This is the second part of an interview with Dr. John Kaler. This is Nisarg Bakshi, uh, OMS2, and he's going to continue with uh, Dr. John Kaler in Chicago. Yes, welcome to another episode of Rotations. Uh, this is part two of our interview with Dr. Kaler, um, talking about his work overseas and all of the amazing things he's done. Uh, and as well, 2016 Chicago end of the year, right? First in line for the green beer. Hey, <laughs> the, the Nisarg, before you get going, um, I wanted to address something Sam had, and, I'll, and, and, and John, you can comment as you see fit. There are opportunities beyond the immigrant population in the United States. There are opportunities to go to Haiti on short-term missions. There are opportunities to go on research trips. And one of the things that I hammer here is, and it has to do with my background, is resiliency as a physician. And uh, John, you tell me if you disagree. One of the most liberating things in the world is to go to a completely austere environment where all you have are your hands and your head and minimal skills. And you say, okay, there's no administrators here. There's no, we need a flat panel TV in the waiting room to make everybody happy. (laughs) People that come there truly need you. Uh, An example would be the Amish community that uh, Dr. Law works with. These people don't come to the doctor unless they have a problem. And so then it challenges you to say, okay, this this isn't another episode of unnecessary antibiotics for three days of sinus congestion. This is serious problems that I need to deal with. And and the beauty of that is, is it builds resilience in you as a physician to be able to say, you know what, if, if Hurricane Katrina comes through New Orleans, I have a basis where to start. I know what I need to start doing to get things going. Uh, John, please comment if you would. Oh, no, I, I could not conceivably support that more. Um, you know, I had said the first 20 years of my life was doing short-term mission work. And so it is as rewarding as can conceivably be. I support that completely. It would be a much better way of getting an understanding, you know. And and certainly going with a teacher such as yourself doesn't bemoan the lack of resources, but understands that that we and I imagine Western Europe are blessed by what we have, by the abundance of what we have. But that's not, not the that's not the abundance of what we do. I, I may I may be I may. I may not uh, make my point here, but I'm going to ask you, did you find a flashlight and a good knife helpful? I did, actually. I found the flashlight to be the most important, <laughs> most important, thing, most important thing in the world. Uh, it, it's interesting, too, because uh, you'll understand what I'm talking about, which is particularly things like um, I'm probably, and you may be, but I'm certainly one of the last. Actually, in my office, I'm actually the last physician who's actually seen measles. I lived through the last crisis. But the other thing is, and none of you, none of the juniors that will understand that, will understand that um, I'm actually capable of treating bronchiolitis without nebulizers. 
uh, uh, simply because there weren't any when we were around. <laughs> and, and you really learn you really learn the natural history of, of these illnesses. I mean, my goodness, now I walk through an emergency room and they give me a breathing treatment. You know, it's sort of like uh, <laughs> how frequent they are now. But so, so one of the things, one of the beauties, particularly for younger physicians, if they have a mentor with them, is to understand that most of these things are natural history. And, and um, natural history evolves over days and weeks. It doesn't evolve over the time it takes to plow through your, well, yeah, I guess, up-to-date now, I guess would be the thing, plow through the latest article and up-to-date. Uh, um, and so it really is good to see, to see these things. And from the standpoint, I just got back from, um, from uh, Lahore, Pakistan. And the amount of the, the, the acuity and the children in the children's hospital that I saw was something that in one week was like a master's course in, in um, um, uh, very sick kids. Um, one thing that kind of came to mind is, as we were talking um, during the last episode is uh, you, you're talking about rebuilding, and, and you said this in an interview as well, uh, that healing the spirit and the soul is, is much harder um, than the physical safety and, and the physical rebuilding. So I was wondering, in, in your opinion, you know, what, what are those first steps that we need to take? We, meaning whoever is in Syria, whoever's working. Right. Well, the absolute first step is to stop the killing. I mean, to the, the, the stop the bombing. The first step is to end this war. But there's no question that, that stability won't be there until this war is over. It's way past um, uh, what it was at the beginning. The second step, though, is to somehow, so the, the, the next two steps have to go together. One is, of course, the children and the adults need work working through whatever uh, post-traumatic stress they have. They'll all have it. There won't be a question about that. It'll be a varying degrees. But the children, you know, we can't just we can't just emphasize the children because it's the adults who will take care of the children. So all the little the little the the, the, the little programs that are set up to help these kids draw pictures. That's all wonderful. There's no questions about that. But there won't be, we'll have no medium to long-term good unless they go back to a home where the adults uh, feel less shame for what was going on. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, so, so those are the second two steps. And then the third step um, is an international step, which means this is going to need a uh, Marshall Plan type of money to, to rebuild if rebuilding is what people want to do. You know, if they go to if 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 the end of this tragedy is um, huge camps, then there is no. I mean, then once that happens, uh, those first two steps are nice, but all you're doing there is is breeding the next level of discontents. That won't be a solution. The camps will not be a solution. There'll be a solution to perhaps stopping the bombing, and that's nice, but those camps will be hell holes. And um, um, so, so the last part of, of, of rebuilding can only be talked about once we know how the tragedy ends. And, and regarding the, the second and third step there, it sounds like you're suggesting uh, that it's going to require more than just a physician effort, right? It, it, you have, it sounds like psychologists, social workers. Well, we'll be the last, I mean, we'll be the last ones necessary in this. I mean, the <laughs> physicians are always nice. And we take ourselves a little bit too seriously around a lot of this, but this is psycho-emotional help. Um, um, I happened to be married to the single best social worker I ever met, uh, and I remember coming 
you know, coming back to, uh, uh, you know, from a conference around, you know, when I was coming forward, it was family systems. So, so I remember coming back from a conference on family systems analysis and that, and I would tell my wife as if this was the greatest thing in the world, and she would look at me like, yeah, this is what we do every single shot every day. <laughs> so, so, so the point... The point is that, yeah, it's important for, for the medical infrastructure to get reset back up. There's no question about that. There'll be a lot of trauma, as I'm sure you saw after Haiti. Uh, when, when we went back six months after Haiti, any two bones that were close together in the leg, we continued to success. So I would hate to see what the PT uh, needs are, you know, are going to be in this. But it's the same way, it'll be the same way in Haiti. There's a lot of physical trauma, a lot of physical damage has been done. The other thing is, think about it. What else has suffered there? Well, when the, when the medical infrastructure is crushed, there's a whole bunch of chronic care that hasn't been given, right? I mean, think about the people who are dying for, who, from dialysis needs. So when I say we only had four incubators, well, there's a real pediatrician thinking about that, right? Think about the dialysis units we didn't have. Right. So there's a lot of diabetes. There's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of DKA that's going on. There's a whole bunch of secondary care that needs to be done, and tertiary care, tertiary medical follow-up, that isn't happening right now because the system is crushed. So, so when we get back in, you know, when we get back in, we being the, the, the larger medical system, that's what we need to concentrate on. We need to bring people in to help, and we're doing community training right now for post-traumatic stress and uh, things like that. All of those programs are there, but again, they're nice programs. There's no, there's no question they're effective in the 25 families that get to come to them. But we're talking half of the population of Syria is displaced, both internally and externally. You know, we're talking five million, five million documented um, um, uh, refugees outside of Syria, let alone how many are undocumented. So it's a big job. Yeah, absolutely. And, and can you talk a little bit more about that community training aspect of it? Because one thing that comes to mind uh, when I when I hear about all these different steps being put in place is we don't want all these steps being administered by Americans, right? We want the Syrians to be able to kind of retake their own country, right? So these are, these are let me let me make sure you understand. These are yeah. these are programs. The Syrian American Medical Society is a volunteer society of, of those of us who go. But we also support uh, financially support okay. um, a whole, whole uh, raft of programs uh, in in um, in Syria. And so the programs I'm talking about are done in the in the um, refugee areas run by Syrian expats uh, who, who who have. Like I say, these are not poor people. This is not like Port of Prince. It's not like Africa. It's not like Chiapas where we've been, uh, where these are really really poor people. These people are these displaced people. You, you've got doctors who are trying to drive cabs in Amman because that's all they can do, right? Um, so these are social workers, educational types, uh, who have programs. Uh, there's a wonderful mental health program at an orphanage I worked at in the Bacaw Valley. Uh, that's just it's an exciting program, and the ones we are supporting are run by run by uh, Syrians. Okay, that, that's great. Um, also, Dr. Fredericks, I was wondering if you could comment. Um, you know, we're talking about healthcare and conflict zones. And you have your own experience with that, uh, you know, in, in a different context. So I was wondering if you could, you know, maybe compare and contrast uh, the experience that you have serving overseas with Dr. Kaler's experience. 
Well, quite frankly, Dr. Kaler is a much braver man than I am because when I go, I go with security and heavy weapons and, and, and weapons on myself, and I have the ability to <coughs> respond to threats. And one of the things that <clears throat> it profoundly affects me uh, profoundly affects me when I think about physicians that are going into these conflict zones is how naked they are. People who are interested in listening, you don't go to these places unannounced. You want you want oh. a connection. You want to be with the Syrian American Medical Society. You want to be with Samaritan's Purse. You want to be with people who are street smart, savvy, have fixtures on the ground because I'm going to tell you, there's no faster way to get yourself killed or in a really bad place than to just show up at, at the uh, you know, Islamabad airport and say, I'm here to help. I mean, you, you are not going to make it five minutes, right? Well, you saw that. I'm sure you saw that in Haiti after the earthquake. People would walk in. I mean, they, they would go into, you know, doctors would go to the DR, rent a, rent a van or mm -hmm. something, and show up at the, at the hospital. These were, I mean, people said, please send money, not yourself. I mean, if you're a trauma surgeon or ER doc, I mean, these, this was, this was ER doc heaven, of course. Uh, um, you know, you would be useful, but you know, an old pediatrician who wants to help needs to have somebody say, "This is where you go, and this is what we do." You don't just walk in and say, "Golly gee, I'd like to help." Well, there was a discussion here, actually, John. When when the Haiti earthquake happened, the first thing I did was pull up Google Maps because I knew nothing about Haiti, and yeah. the strategic planner in me wanted to see what the infrastructure was. And I realized, okay, there's a single runway airport. Okay, it yep. probably has no precision approaches. It's got a port. It's destroyed. Um, yeah. Okay, and, and so people say, well, we got to go. And I said, wait a minute, what are you going to do when you get there? There's no right. water, there's no food, right. people are fighting for their life. What they need is they need urban search and rescue right now, heavy equipment and engineers to pull rubble exactly. off people, and they need a, yeah. they need people who can bring that logistics package, set it down and get it running, yep. the military, a.k.a., on the airports. Because, and not only that, what's your plan to get out? Because yeah. once you get there and you say, oh, I've had my week or two of my adventure here, <laughs> yeah, and exactly now, right. okay, well, how do you get home? You know, right. the cell phone towers are gone. There's no structure you understand about how to survive. You have to bring everything you need with you, including your personal hygiene items, food, because there is nothing there. And so it's really important. And we'll put stuff in the show notes. We'll put links to the Syrian American Medical mm -hmm. Society yeah. and stuff. You Please. need to do a little bit of research and, and start learning about you can do this. And, and it's rewarding to do it. Just do your planning first and make sure that you're not a hindrance, you're a help when you get there. And well, that can be even done. Even in Katrina, where people knew, I mean, you know, people wanted to go down. Well, they, they appropriately, it didn't get, remember, it never got taken care of until the military took care of it. I mean, you know, you know things fall apart. It's the same way the first group on the ground in Haiti were the, uh, were the Israelis. That was, a, John, do you know a little bit about that, by the way? Because that was a remarkable thing the Israelis pulled off in Haiti. Talk, to, talk about what the Israelis pulled off there. Well, within, oh, probably the first 12 hours... Uh, they were they 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 picked this they picked up the the uh, news essentially, and they were mobilized, landed, and had a, a trauma hospital set up on the uh, uh, you know on the tarmac. I guess within twelve to sixteen hours. Yeah, it was unbelievable from Israel. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah exactly. From Israel. And it wasn't like. You know, there wasn't a whole bunch of negotiations. Their 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 ass wasn't. Excuse my language. They were they were. In the air and then on the ground. It's all the same, isn't it? I mean, it all. it's all the same because at the bottom line, uh, there, Nassar, I'm going to steal one of your questions. You talk about how do you fight apathy. That was um, my next question. <laughs> yeah, and I'll, I'll let you, I'll give it back to you again. But no, it's all yours. You got to remember something. <laughs> it's an individual. All medicine is anecdotal. 
it's one person at a time. And what Dr. Kaler said is, I'm not a politician. You know, these, these ideas, I'm going to go affect some dramatic change in the system by myself. Mr. Smith Goes to Washington was a great movie, but we're already <laughs> seeing that in today's time, contemporary, it's really hard for Mr. Smith to go to Washington. Dr. Dr. Smith Goes to Syria. What Dr. Yeah. Smith can do, he or her, is start with one person. I'm going to help yeah. that person. And maybe they live for 24 more hours, but I gave them another 24 hours of life with their family. You have to put it in that perspective. And when you start seeing it that way and you realize, I don't have to worry about the big problems. I just have to take care of the problem in front of me and do the best I can with it and move on. It, it makes it yeah. so much easier. It's so liberating as a doctor to work like that. It, I, it yeah. really is. I, I, can't, I can't reinforce that any more than, than you just said it. There's, an old, there's a saying that all illness is idiopathic. Okay, now, and what that means is that the, the, the derivation of, of idios means individual. It's the same derivation as individual. So in point of fact, all illness is idiopathic. Not all disease, but all illness is idiopathic. It's I love that. individual lived experience of a problem. I love that. You can help with that. You don't need, a, you don't need an MRI. You can help work through that individual experience. And it's, and it's nothing in my career has ever been more rewarding to me than helping families here or the states. I mean, the states or the many. When you connect at that level, you're actually feeling something. And that how, that's a healing process, mm -hmm. both for you and them. Mm -hmm. What about apathy, uh, you know, from just like a lay person, the people that don't really realize the severity of what's going on over there? How do you talk to them? Um... Because people, people have a life, right? I mean, I have the financial and physical ability to go back and forth and pay attention to these things. Most of the people who, who I might think are apathetic still have to figure out how to put meat and potatoes on their table. So, so write, write articles, bring awareness. This was all part of bearing witness. You know, it's, it's all I can do. Go down to the Carolinas, to Samaritan's Purse during Christmas time, and look at regular folks that take their time and go all the way down there to pack boxes of small toys and small things for children around the world. It's not the regular people that have a hard time with this. They can relate to that. They can say, I know what it's like if I can't make my bills. I know what it'd be like to be terrified if my child was going to be in danger. I know what that's like. It's the elites that we have a problem with who live these charmed lives in these think tanks that never get out and start, start prescribing, well, this is how you should do things. And you're like, do you understand the average income in this country is $47,000 a year? I mean, that's not a lot of money to operate on. The average person gets it. They can figure it out. You tell a story and say, this is what I saw, and here's some pictures. They go... Wow, I can relate to that on some level in my in my experience. Well, that, that's awesome, and, and I think we're wrapping up this conversation as well. But thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Kaler. Uh, it's absolutely my honor and my pleasure. Hey, I do have one final question, though. How, how do you feed your family while you're on all these uh, junkets? Well, because uh, I mean, people are going to ask that. I mean, how do I afford to no, go no, do no, this? By the way, and let me let me let me give a shout out to my friends. Um, I worked in the public sector for 34 years. And in addition to the public sector, I had a, I had a practice I worked at a, as a salaried employee. Um, one of the benefits of working for the public sector for 34 years is you get a public sector pension. Mm -hmm. So to answer your question is, I'm retired. Um, I have a, a fine pension that I can live on. Um, I have six kids and 12 grandkids. And the good news about sins of an ill-spent youth is all my kids are older and taking care of themselves. And, I gave them what they needed, and now they got their own problems. Um, <laughs> so where's your next trip? 
I go to uh, Lebanon to spend. Uh, I'll be spending a month in the Bekaa Valley uh, in July. Well, maybe uh, maybe uh, sometime in the fall. When are you coming back? You going for how long? So I'll go over to Lebanon. I'll be back on the first of August. Okay, so if we hit you up uh, sometime in the winter, maybe you'll tell us about your trip to Bekaa Valley. Oh, absolutely. Awesome. Well, thank you again for joining us, Dr. Kaler. It was a really interesting Absolute conversation. My pleasure. Uh, and thank you to Sam and Aaron for being on the panel as well. Uh, we always enjoy having our people off the street here. Yeah. So thank you guys for joining us. Happy to be Thanks here. Thanks for having us. Yep. We'll look forward to talking to you later in the year, Dr. Kaler. And have a safe trip. Okay. Yeah. And, and I'll send you some pictures. Uh, yes, please. Uh, please do. Thank, thank you, you so much. much. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so we'll let uh, we'll Dr. Kaler sign off. Uh, what do you guys think about I mean, that was quite a conversation. A lot of heavy questions. Yeah. I mean, Sam, does it compel you to, to go somewhere and do something? It, it does. A lot of um, what you two brought up was actually reminiscent of when I worked in Honduras with Global Medical Brigades for a couple weeks. So mm-hmm. a lot of it was kind of a callback, like even just going into the village to interact with people. We'd have an armed soldier accompanying us at all times. We were told just to go to the um, outhouse but not to stray any further without someone else accompanying us no matter what, or if even if someone was calling for help just because of... I went back in 2010, so I think um, Shining Path, I believe, was uh, one of the bigger problems at that point, mm-hmm. looking back on it. But just a, like even that was kind of eye-opening when I was a college student, and so to hear what you two have to say about your personal experiences was really humbling. Mm. Well, you'll be there someday. One day I'll be old, I'll be, you'll be taking care of me in the nursing home, and you'll have just told me you came back from Peru and the Shining Path tried to get you. And Yeah, I think they're done with that. How about, how about you, Aaron? Any thoughts? I think yeah, one of my challenges is knowing kind of where to spend my time or how to give my resources in a way that's most helpful. Mm-hmm. And so I think the insight as far as how to choose where to go and making those decisions is something that I think we all find ourselves in a situation where we want to help that's part of the reason why we chose a career, but knowing what the best way to do that is in the safest mm-hmm. way and the way to not, not get in the way of who we're trying to help. And just for the sake of anybody who's listening or watching, uh, Dan Skinner, who's one of our PhDs from Columbus, walked in. Uh, he, he just decided to be another special person off the street today. And uh, yeah, so that's it. That's Rotations, and uh, we'll catch you next time. Yep. Thank you for joining Thank us. Thank you. Rotations is a weekly podcast of all things medical and is part of the media and medicine family of medical storytelling. Rotations is a product of the Ohio University Heritage College of Osteopathic Medicine, and the Scripps College of Communications. Rotations is hosted by Nisark Bakshi, produced by Todd Fredericks, audio engineered by Kyle Snyder, and video edited by Brian Plow. Rotations is co-hosted by League of Champions of All Things Medical and a few people we pull off the street. Rotations is copyrighted, and while we welcome citations, tweets, Facebook likes, and other endorsements via word of mouth and social media, we reserve all rights to content. You may use Rotations content under the provisions of Creative Commons, but you cannot alter or edit the content in any manner without express permission of the content creators, and you must cite rotations as the source of any content derived from the podcast. We welcome any comments, and you can contact us by emailing us at rotationspodcast at gmail.com, tweeting us at rotationspcast, or by visiting mediaandmedicine.com and putting the word rotations in the subject line.